Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning. Good morning, Hope Brooklyn. How are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? I'd ask you guys to grab your seats. It's amazing to see real, live, in-person conversations happening. You know, again, like, you, we, who would have known two years ago that that would be, like, a luxury? Uh, and so now it's so awesome seeing you guys just, you know, just coming together and being able to worship together. There's a moment during worship when um, I, just, I stopped singing, um, not because I didn't want to keep worshiping, but it was just so beautiful to hear everyone's voices. And there's something encouraging and powerful about other believers and Christians worshiping our God together. And so... Man, I'm so excited to be here. If you're new or, you know, you haven't been around, um, my name is Ryan. I'm on the pastoral team here, and we're going to be continuing a series today entitled Wisdom's Call. And what we've been doing over the past, really past two weeks is the third week into the series. We've been talking about wisdom, and we've been doing this by exploring the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. There are three books categorized as a part of the wisdom literature, the tra- wisdom tradition in the Old Testament, and that would be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Job. And so last two weeks, we were looking at some things from Proverbs, and honestly, we could spend a whole year there, but we're you know trying to keep it concise. And so now we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes, and what's also about these books is they sort of work together. They are, they, they, they are talking to each other and giving us different perspectives on wisdom. And so we're going to be starting that today, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm, I'm actually really excited about today's message because I think it's prevalent. I think it's going to speak to especially where we're at as people, where we're at maybe as a culture, and maybe give us a way forward. But before we do that, I want to pray for us, that God would open our eyes. So allow me to read this prayer over us as we get ready to receive God's words, so that this might fall on good soil. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of our hearts that we may hear your word and understand and do your will. For we are pilgrims upon the earth. Hide not your commandments from us, but open our eyes that we may perceive the wonders of your law. Speak unto us the hidden and secret things of your wisdom. On you do we set our hope, that you shall enlighten our minds and understanding with the light of your knowledge, not only to cherish those things which are written, but to do them. That in reading the lives and sayings of the saints we may not sin, but that such may serve for our restoration, enlightenment, and sanctification. For the salvation of our souls and the inheritance of life everlasting. For you are the enlightenment of those who lie in darkness. And from you comes every good deed and every gift. Amen. So, what, as I was preparing um, for this message and really, really to um, get myself ready to talk about what we're going to talk about today, I, I did a bit, little bit of research, and I was curious to know, like, what's the mental state of the average American in this kind of season we've been in? And I, I ran into an interesting study done by the U.S. Census Bureau. The U.S. Census Bureau, during COVID, began to do these weekly sort of studies to kind of check in on the mental state of America. We are in this unprecedented situation, still somewhat in this unprecedented situation. We're dealing with the reality of now life completely different as we know it. And so they did this kind of um, study, and an interesting report came out that this was, they, they focused the study on New Yorkers, actually. And in 
the weeks of May 21st to 26th when this poll took place, so we're talking height of the pandemic, right? 49% of New Yorkers reported feeling hopeless. That's interesting. It's not 49% of New Yorkers were feeling anxious. Not that 49% of New Yorkers were feeling depressed or down. Not that 49% of New Yorkers were feeling frustrated or, or angry at what was happening. People reported that they were feeling hopeless. And I, I, I think that this poll that was done by the U.S. Census Bureau is actually indicative of a wider trend in our culture today. That many of us, maybe some of us in this room, certainly people in, 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 in our country, certainly people in the city feel hopeless. That for many of us, meaning, purpose, value has been stripped out of life. That the, the things we used to hold dear, the, the beliefs that used to guide us, the, the, the perspectives that used to get us through today, we've, we've taken a look at them and all of a sudden, rather than seeing any sort of meaning or purpose in our lives, we feel hopeless. And this feeling, this, this feeling of hopelessness, this feeling of all meaning and value getting stripped and sucked out of life didn't happen overnight. See, the philosophical term for this feeling is nihilism. Nihilism comes from the Latin root, which means nothing, is a philosophy that rejects general fundamental aspects of human life, such as objective truth, morality, knowledge, value, and meaning. Nihilism is this philosophical framework that there is no inherent meaning to life. There is no inherent purpose. There is no inherent truth. And so this is actually the, the philosophy that kind, of give, that kind of gives its foundation for our time, the postmodern era. We are, we are a people who are unmoored from deeper meaning, value, and truth. And we, as a result, we are adrift in a sea of unknowing, unsure of where our meaning and value comes from. This is coupled with a social condition that sociologists begin to, begin to document. It's called anime, which is a social condition defined by the breakdown of moral value standards and guidance. In other words, if we look at our society today, all the old markers and institutions that used to seem to give us guidance, used to give us purpose and value and meaning have eroded. We, you know, the idea of patriotism has somewhat eroded. There's, there's, rather than feeling some sort of meaning or value behind some sort of national identity, that's eroded. Religious identity has eroded. The institutions we used to look for, for religious guidance that, that seemingly gave us meaning, value, and purpose have eroded. And so we are left unmoored. We are left without any meaning or value. And while this seems high and falutant and it seems kind of esoteric, the reality is this affects our daily lives. See, I think a lot of us deal with what's called existential nihilism, which is the, the pervasive feeling that life is without intrinsic value, purpose, or meaning. And this was popularized by Friedrich Nietzsche, um, the, the, the great philosopher and 
he said, and his, his kind of vision of nihilism is this. Uh, if he characterized it as, as a condition of tension between what we value and how the world appears to operate. No, our nihilism has a source. Uh, this feeling of meaninglessness has a source. And it's this tension because we, we know what we want to value. We know what we want to hold dear. We, we know how we, we think where meaning and value comes from. But then we look at the way the world works and we can't justify the two. We like to say life has meaning, purpose, and value, but then we see seemingly senseless death around us. We like to say that, there, you know, Martin Luther King had that great quote, says, you know, the, the, you know, history bends towards justice, and, and yet we haven't seen the bend. And so now we're left feeling like, man, is there any true meaning to my life, or is this all a deep, dark void? And this kind of philosophy is a direct result of atheism. You, you know, you kind of see throughout the history of, the, of Western culture, there's a move from theism. So predominantly in the West, especially, you know, in the Middle Ages from, you know, the, from, like from the 8th, 9th, 10th century onward, there's theism, right? And the pervasive idea that, that there was a personal God who existed. And then you had the enlightenment and you had a move towards what's called deism. So there's God out there, but he's not really concerned with us. And then you had in the, in the modernists, they move towards atheism, that, that there is no transcendent God or reality. And Nietzsche, he, he, he saw the decline of this belief. And he says, well, you know, God is dead and we have killed him, his, favorite, his famous line. And the direct result of this atheism, this this kind of rejection of any sort of transcendent truth or reality is nihilism. If there's nothing giving this thing we call life meaning, then life is inherently meaningless. And what's this result? Well, we see it in our lives. It, 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 it seems to be no wonder we are some of the most depressed in history. The rising, rising anxiety, the anxiety rising of, of people battling and dealing with mental health crises. It's not all directly related to this, but if you live in a culture that seemingly says that, well, you know, there's ultimately no meaning of life outside the meaning you can give it, it's really no surprise that we face crises of faith and depression and how many of us, the only real recourse is to live for ourselves or try to give ourselves some sort of meaning or value. And even that is a scary thought. You know, it's funny. You ever watch every Disney movie? Every Disney movie, the core message is what? You can be whatever you want to be. And that sounds pretty, but it's actually terrifying. You get to be whatever you want to be. Because ultimately, if there's no one giving you meaning, then you have to create meaning for yourself. And that's a terrifying prospect. Because whatever meaning you give yourself, it's on you. And you have to figure it out and come up with it. And I say all that in a very long introduction to basically say many of us are living as functional nihilists. We're here in church, so we might say Mentally, we believe that there's some sort of God or some sort of higher reality, but the reality is functionally, deep down inside, we live as if there's no meaning inherent to our lives. The stories we tell about Jesus or we tell about God don't actually shape how we live. We're functionally nihilists. And we're like this, why? 
because there's a disconnect between what we say we think about God and the world and what we actually see in the world. And I say this with great hope because this perspective on the world is actually not unique to us. It's actually found in the Old Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher. Some of your translations might say meaningless. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or all is meaningless. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to a place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. The people long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of the people yet to come by those who come after them. Yeah, this isn't new. This feeling that life is utterly meaningless, that feeling that life is without any inherent meaning or purpose or direction, Kohelet, which is the name of the teacher in this passage, he's saying, hey, listen, there's nothing new. Everything is the same. Nothing changes. And if we continue to read in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, he gets to this point. Why? Because he can't seem to rationalize how the world works. See, Kohelet's a good Jew. He's a monotheist. He believes in God. He believes in transcendent reality. He believes that there is a personal God out there somewhere. And yet when he looks at life, he can't make sense of it. Why do the foolish seem to succeed? Why do those who practice unjust things seem to get away with it? Why is there death? Matter of fact, he goes on to say in this, chap, in this book, he goes on to say, man, no, honestly, it's better to be an unborn child than to live in a world like this. He can't seem to find any really real direction or meaning or purpose or value to life. He gives this beautiful analogy. He says, listen, listen the sea is never filled. The, the rivers keep running. The wind keeps moving and life seems meaningless. That word meaningless, that word vanity is a beautiful word picture that we can't really translate in English well, but it means vapor or mist. So he's saying life is like vapor. Life is like mist. You try to grab at it. You try to make sense of it. And if you ever try to grab smoke, you know what happens? It just dissipates. He can't seem to make sense of his reality. He can't seem to make sense of what's going on in the world. And his conclusion is all must be meaningless. All must be vanity. Like he says later on, like chasing the wind. You ever try to chase the wind? It's a fruitless endeavor. And for many of us, like Kohelet, we are dealing with some sort of existential nihilism. We are dealing with this fundamental belief deep down at the root of us that we can't seem to figure out the meaning of life either. We might think we have a grasp on it, but as soon as we try to grab it, it, it runs away from us. And for many of us, whether you admit it or not, 
we are looking at a deep, dark pit of despair. And we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We can't make sense of what we see in the world and what we say we believe about God. We can't make sense of this tension, this disconnect with what we want to value and how the world seems to really work. And ends up in nihilism. This, this belief that, well, if I can't make sense of it, then perhaps there is no meaning or purpose to our lives. But I want to offer you some hope if that's you today. Because God saw it in his sovereign power to put the words of a nihilist into his sacred scripture. So just take a moment to ponder that. That God in his mercy said, no, it's going to be a part of my sacred scripture. The words of someone who seems to think life is meaningless. And that means if that's you today, if you're dealing with that deep, dark pit of despair, when you can't figure out the meaning, you can't figure out the tension between what you want to value, what you, what you want to believe about the world and how it actually is, you're not alone. God has saw you and God has seen you. And he is calling us today to, to try to reconcile this tension and to answer the question, is there actual meaning to life? And the answer the scripture gives is yes. See, well, Kohelet doesn't have, like we have, is the benefit of hindsight, the benefit of the story of Jesus. See, Kohelet, all he has to go on is his natural observations about the world. All he has to go on is what he, is what he can see. And he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt of the person of Jesus. And I want to posit, I want to propose to you today that it's actually the person of Jesus and more specifically the cross that makes sense of nihilism, that makes sense of the seeming meaninglessness of life. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, context, Corinth was a city full of philosophers a city full of rhetoricians, people who are trained to ask these deep questions, people who are trying to figure out the meaning of life. And this is what he says to the church in Corinth as he's writing to them. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamations to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God is saying to these people through his servant, St. Paul, he's saying, listen, I know you live in a society of wisdom that is asking all the deep questions, but you can't get to the real answers without grace. The reason why we cannot reconcile the tension 
between what we see in the world, what we want to value, and how the world really seems to work is because that is not a logical leap the human mind can make. See, it's only in belief in the, in the, the person of, of Jesus, the, the triune God, that the seeming randomness and tensions and nihilistic tendencies of our thought patterns begin to resolve themselves. See, it said God decided through his wisdom that we can attain knowledge of God through wisdom, that our, our reason, our rationality, our ability to comprehend the world is not enough to make sense of this very complicated thing we call life. We can try, and some of us get pretty far. Some of us, you know, that's why we have great philosophers. We wouldn't have great philosophers if it wasn't for common grace. This idea that, yeah, humans who don't know God can say really wise things about life, but ultimately they cannot resolve the tensions of what we see and what we believe. It's only in the person of Jesus that all this begins to make sense. Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. In John, St. John calls him the logos, the word, the reason. Jesus is the very thing that seems to give all life reason and meaning. Because why? By him and through him and for him, all things were made. And nothing was made that has been made but through Christ. And so this is Paul's answer to nihilism. That though we cannot bridge the gap between what, what, we, what we want to value and what, how the world seems to work, it's actually the person of Christ who can. It's actually the vision of the cross that is the very wisdom of God. See, in the wisdom of God, all, in the wisdom of God, the cross becomes a symbol through which all human tensions are worked out. In the cross, we somehow figure out a vision of justice and mercy. In the cross, we see the eternal God, die. In the, in the cross, we see suffering given meaning. In the cross, we see a vision of what it looks like to actually attain true power through death. The seeming paradoxes and the tensions of the human life are all resolved in the cross, for in the cross, Jesus brings all those things to a head in and of himself and makes sense of them. The God-man, the word became flesh, the place where death seems to reign and yet it's through death life occurs. Jesus makes sense of the void. Jesus steps into the void and says, I give this meaning because I stepped into human history and I, and I declared myself the God-man and it's because you see me and, in, and by seeing me, you see the Father and in turn see yourself that you actually have access to the wisdom of God and in the wisdom of God begin to make sense of the void we seem to see in our lives. Jesus gives us meaning for Jesus is the image of God, the true image of God which is then reflected onto us to, to help us understand what it means to be the image of God. Jesus is the, the person in the gap who gives actual meaning and purpose and value to life. The cross is the symbol of this. This paradoxical symbol that somehow the cross is also a throne. 
that it's through being raised up and dying that Jesus actually ascends to power and life. He resolves the tensions. When we see suffering in the world, it's through the cross we realize that suffering can have powerful, redemptive meaning. When we see the abuse of power, and we, when we, we see people lording it over others, we actually see in the cross, actually, power comes through weakness and self-sacrifice. It's in the cross that we somehow reconcile that a completely just God also is a God of complete and total love. See, nihilism is predicated on being unable to resolve the tension. The, the, the seeming meaninglessness of life comes from the fact that we can't figure out if these things we witness in the world can have any meaning. And it's Jesus on the cross that actually says, no, these things can have meaning. Why? Because I give them meaning through my own suffering and death. Our wisdom is limited, but the wisdom of God reveals to us the meaning and purpose of life, which is that God is reconciling all things into himself in his son Jesus until all things are put under the feet of the son and he reigns over all. That Jesus is bridging the gap between Jew and Greek, slave and free, between pain and life, between suffering and redemption. All these things, these things, things that are seemingly disparate and separate have come to their head together in Jesus so that we might understand that life is not meaningless but is packed full of redemptive meaning because it's through the vision of Christ we can see the gap closed. We can see that the value, the things we want to value, the virtues we want to value, somehow makes sense, even in a world that's still filled with suffering and death. And so the, the question becomes, for those of us who are confronted with this like deep, dark pit of nihilistic existential crisis, those of us who deep down inside, man, like my life has no meaning. It, how could it have meaning when I'm facing this or that's happening in the world? Well, Jesus comes to confront your nihilism. And Jesus comes to say, look at me and see in me how the tensions of life that seem irre irreconcilable are resolved. It's by looking at the cross. Our nihilism is confronted and meaning is given back to us. You know, it's funny. In the creation story, you have the serpent, the temptation. And we learn in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. All humanity is made in the image of God. And the serpent offers them like a, a, a bastardized, broken version of that vision. And what does he offer them? He says, you will be like God. The great irony is they are already like God because they were made in his image. But he offers them this broken, sinful corrupt version of the image of God and they take it on and seemingly lose their meaning. They lose their capacity to rightly bear the image of God in the world. And it's only until Jesus comes, right, where Paul says in Romans, death came through Adam, but life comes through Jesus Christ. That it's through Christ the human image is restored. Jesus is the truly human one who on the cross restores the image of God so that we can have meaning again.
We feel meaningless because the human vocation, what it means to be human, has been corrupted by sin. And so we can't make sense of this life, but it's in Christ when our image is restored that all of a sudden we have meaning and purpose again. Because our capacity to image God has been restored. And it's only looking at Christ and the cross we see the wisdom of God that makes sense of the nihilistic divide. And so the question is, what does it mean for our lives? What does this mean for our walk with Jesus? Well, this all begins with acknowledging the limits of our reason. I would like to say this. Faith, belief, Christian belief and faith is not the abdication of reason. We don't say, we are not saying, you know, you don't need to think about your faith. That's silly. That's not the faith the Bible requires. But what it does mean, it means the submission of reason. To, to, to humbly say, God, I am human, and so in my finite mind, I cannot make sense of the world. It is not within my power or purview to make sense of this seemingly broken world. And so in order to begin to confront our nihilism, we have to acknowledge the limits of our reason. That the reason why we're kind of in this nihilistic pit where there's seeming meaninglessness to life is because we actually aren't the ones who give life meaning. It's actually not our job. Our meaning is a gift given to us, not something we discern for ourselves. And after we acknowledge the limits of our reason, this then requires radically reorienting our lives around the story of Jesus. That the story of Jesus ceases to be something we tell, but begins to be something we live. That sounds very abstract, but Jesus has made it quite simple for us, really. He gave us the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, this is how my story looks played out. So the question is, like, are you living out that story? Are you, are you amongst the meek inheriting the earth? Are you the ones loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Because by living out that story, all of a sudden, Jesus makes sense of the seeming brokenness of the world because it's in the Christian story, it's in the story of Jesus, that all of a sudden we learn what it means to truly be human. And he's given us the roadmap to truly live as, as people whose image has been restored, who, who the tensions have been resolved. He, he's given us his wisdom but is that story shaping our lives and how we live? Are we reorienting our lives on the story of Jesus? Are we not just telling the story of Jesus, but allowing it to shape our ethics and our motivations, our relationships? Are we allowing Jesus to give us our meaning? And last but not least, we have to learn to embrace a cruciform perspective of the human existence. What does this mean? Well, the cross is the wisdom of God. And what the cross says is, the things we believe are antithetical to each other are actually brought together. So in, here's a great example. When we suffer, well, Christ makes sense of our suffering by suffering with us. And so we actually can see that suffering can actually produce glory. That suffering can be worked out for good. As Joseph says in Genesis, you know, what Satan meant for evil, God turned for good. That's a cruciform perspective of the human existence. That's what it means to look at my suffering, look at what I'm facing and saying, hold on, but there's a different perspective on this thing. A cruciform perspective is loving your enemies. 
It's looking at the people that you radically disagree with who maybe have even done you harm and saying, but they're still actually valuing them. And they're actually still worthy, not by any merit of their own, but they're still worthy of dignity and the love of God. That's a cruciform perspective of the human existence. Rather than seeing enemy and my friends, me and my tribe versus them, I begin to see all people as my brothers and sisters. That's a cruciform perspective of human existence. It's allowing the cross to dictate how we live our lives, the wisdom of God influencing how we live, act, and breathe. The only answer to nihilism is the cross. The only answer to meaninglessness is the person of Jesus. Because it's in in him all things have their meaning and find their fulfillment. And it's through the cross. The cross is the lens through which we see the world and understand that the seemingly divided, disparate things that we can't make sense of are actually resolved together. And so I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And then we'll take communion. And this is a shameless plug. But, you know, it is what it is. So I recently wrote a book, and if you don't know, right, we're selling copies in the lobby now. We're not. Um, But funnily enough, I was actually struggling to find a way to end this message, and I was really, like, scared and ashamed, you know, like, to to share, because self-promotion is not my thing. That sounds really, like, you know, haughty, but already, right? But... For real, like, I really struggle with that. And so I was like, you know what, whatever, like, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. But then like, I was looking for a way to end the sermon, and I was like, oh, like, I wrote something about this. And so I was like, well, might as well end, use this to end our sermon. But this book I wrote was a collection of poetry. Um, I probably don't look that much like a poet, but here it is. But here, here's why I'm sharing this, because the poem is called Christ in Paradox. So there you go. And it's a reflection on this very reason how Christ is the wisdom of God, is the one where all the tensions are resolved, where we don't have to drift off into meaninglessness because we can't make sense of it, but Christ actually makes sense of it by being a paradox himself. So I'm going to read this to us, and then we're going to pray. Because it's only in the paradox of the cross and the paradox of Christ that life actually has inherent meaning and value. And so let me read this. It's very short. Christ in paradox. The God of Golgotha enthroned on a skull. The conquering king with a crown of thorns the perpetually loved and forsaken son, the eternal God who made flesh his home and learned to reign by giving up his throne. That is the resolution. All the tensions brought together, made sense of, in the person of Jesus so that we don't have to drift off into meaninglessness but find all our meaning in the great paradox that is the cross. And so I want to pray for us in a moment and then we're going to have worship team come join me so we can get ready for communion and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, the Eucharist together. But I don't know if anything I said today, you said, man, that's me. 
I'm a functional nihilist. I, I know I, I'm here, so I'm saying I believe in sort of some sort of transcendent reality. I, I believe in Jesus, but honestly, every day I function as if my life had no meaning. And I've, I've tried to find meaning. I've tried to make sense of all the tensions. I've tried to piece this thing together, and it's a mess. And I'm staring at a deep, dark pit of despair. And I don't know where meaning comes from. Well, today, friend, I offer you Christ, who resolves the tension and gives meaning to all creation. So let me pray for you. Father, on the outwardness of reality, on the, on the outside of reality, it seems to make no sense. Nietzsche isn't wrong. Kohelet isn't wrong. When we look at the world, we seem to not be able to reconcile what we want to value and how the world seems to work. And this revelation does send us into a deep, dark pit of despair. It does convince us that if we can't reconcile these tensions, then there's no meaning. But you came in flesh to reconcile the, a broken world, to make sense of the things we can't make sense of by becoming yourself a paradox in which all things are resolved. And so we acknowledge today the limits of our reason. We acknowledge that we cannot give ourselves meaning. But by looking and turning to you, you give us meaning and you make sense of the tensions we cannot resolve. You are the God of Golgotha. You are the one enthroned on a skull. You are the perpetually loved and forsaken son. And you call us home. So God, for those of us who have probably dealing with real depression, real anxiety, as a result of not being able to reconcile these tensions, struggling to give meaning to our lives, we say we turn to you now for our meaning. Because only a crucified God could make sense of a world rife with tension and paradox. We thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name.